All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network, where we have nothing but awesome guests for you guys. So now we're going to bring in Professor Larry Lessig from Harvard Law School. He is a preeminent expert on campaign finance reform, the godfather of that reform movement. And we want to talk about HR1 for the People Act and break it down for you guys. So Larry, good to see you again. Great to be here, Chink. All right, so it's, it's well, let me start this way. Do you think this is a good bill or a great bill? Jake, this is a big freaking deal. I can't use a swear word, I would have used a swear <laughs> word. But this is a huge, huge deal, way beyond anything. I imagined when I got into this fight 15 years ago, when I wrote my book, opening with your quote that there's only one issue in America and it's campaign finance reform. I just never would have imagined we would be this close to something as fundamental as HR1 is. It is a big, big deal. Yeah, and you know, for the audience, you're familiar with what I think about democratic bills. And so I don't say good or great as a matter of course at all with a democratic right. bill, but this one is really great. And I agree with Larry, but let's break it down further. So it's got basically two buckets of reforms. One is on voting rights and the other is on campaign finance reform. So let's talk about voting rights for a second there. What are the provisions in there that are really needed? Well, I mean, I, I, I would reframe it a little bit. Let's, let's say that there are three core provisions and then a whole bunch of icing on the cake. And the three core provisions are basically a bunch of reforms that would make it impossible for the states to suppress the votes of Democrats. That's basically what this game is about. Um, so automatic vote registration, mail, vote by mail, all sorts of protection for the infrastructure of voting, everything to make it so that every citizen who wants to vote gets to vote. The second critical change in Title II is gerrymandering. No more partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts. And the third critically important bucket, the one we've been fighting on together for so many years, is changing the way candidates fund their campaigns. By having a matching fund system, six to one match for small contributions. If you agree to take no large contributions, nothing more than $1,000. And what's really exciting for me is a pilot for a voucher program. That would you know, be like the Seattle system where you give every voter a voucher that they can use to help fund campaigns. In my view, that is the most important change to the way the Democratic Party and Congress would work. And that is still in this bill. Okay, I want to get to the campaign finance parts of it in a second. Just one quick question on the the voting rights and the gerrymandering. So, um, there's 250 bills across the country now, recently proposed since the election, from Republicans and state legislatures trying to take away voting rights in different ways. Um, so, is this the type of federal law? that would supersede those local laws. How do those two interact together? And and this is basically the same question on gerrymandering. There aren't new laws on gerrymandering, but does the federal government get to say it just doesn't exist anymore, and we're gonna do it a different way? Right, so the Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, expressly gives Congress the power to override the rules that the states have adopted for federal elections, for federal elections. So we can't do anything about the gerrymandering of state senate races in Pennsylvania. That's just nothing within the federal government's power. And we can't do anything about vote by mail for state races in Pennsylvania. It's just not within government's power. But the Congress has an express power to be able to 
alter the rules the states have adopted if Congress doesn't like them. And Congress has done this historically many times. And in this context, what Congress would basically be saying is, look, an election in a representative democracy is supposed to be representative. Everybody is supposed to have an equal shot, equal shot at voting. And under the system the states are implementing. They are intentionally making it harder for Democrats to participate. I mean, some people view this through the lens of race, and that's a fair way to look at it as well. But whether it's race or partisan, the point is they're trying to make it so the other team can't compete. And that's how they want to win. They want to win by making it so the other side has no equal shot. And that's why this is so critical. You know, we're supposed to have a majoritarian democracy. And it's always been precariously majoritarian, given the Senate, given the screwiness of the Electoral College. But if the, if the Republicans are allowed in 2022 to pass the bills that are floating through the states and to gerrymander, now that the Supreme Court has said it's not gonna have anything to do to limit gerrymandering, then they will embed a system that changes us from a precariously majoritarian nation to a predictably minoritarian like Iraq or Syria or Rwanda. A nation where a party which is not the majority party, which doesn't get as many votes, will systematically have the ability to control our government. This is the most important fight we've seen. And it's so astonishing, we are close to winning if we can just keep this together. Yeah, and and so so you understand the, the context of the voting rights part. Uh, and, and, and it affects gerrymandering too, for, for sure. So for example, in Syria, Bashar al-Assad, the dictator there is, is Alawi. And it, he's part of a minority party, but they took power and chose not to give it back. Right. And, and it was by other means, but given the capital riots, not that dissimilar, at least the beginnings of it. And so we cannot have minority rule here. That's Crazy. We have to protect minority rights, whether those are racially based or party based. We have to protect minority yes. rights, but we can't. But we, a democracy by definition is majority rule, and and of yeah. course Republicans did not mind that when they were the majority, and now they seem to have a significant issue with it. Obviously, when the shoes on the other foot. One more thing on gerrymandering, though. Um, I'm I'm sure that the Democrats want to do the voting rights part because it's not only the right thing to do, but it actually helps them. So that's that's covered. Okay, our our incentive system is is okay on that on solid footing there. On the gerrymandering, man, that throws everything for a loop because those districts are crazy, as you know. Yeah. They're 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 just a they're just a hot mess. So if they're going to redo all of those in a rational way, wouldn't that endanger some Democratic seats as well as Republican seats? No, I mean, because you know, the reality is that it's a democratic majority nation. Um, and, and so all that the federal government is doing is requiring nonpartisan districting. Um, and so uh, I don't think we're gonna see in states like Maryland or even Massachusetts changes that would affect uh, the Democrats. But my own view is I don't give it, I don't care. I mean, you know, the point is the principle. The point is yeah. we should not have this game being played. And oh, by the way, the Republicans control wildly more state legislatures than the Democrats. So if you don't wanna be principled about it, at least recognize that if the Republicans are able to gerrymander without any constraint, which is what the Supreme Court has said, 
This practically guarantees they will just write themselves like the like the um, uh, like in Syria, the Alawite, uh, like in um, uh, Iraq with the Sunnis in Ba'athist Iraq, like uh, the Tutsis in Rwanda. They will just write themselves into power. And the Supreme Court has said, "Oh well, nothing we're going to do about that." Indeed, the only time the court has ever gotten involved is to say minoritarian government is pretty good because when it comes to money. The Supreme Court said, sure, hell yes. Not just is not only is it permitted, it's constitutionally guaranteed. You get to spend as much money as you want, and nothing the government can do to, can stop you. So the Supreme Court is hopeless on this. And the only shot we've got is HR1 changing the rules for 2022. Right. And and I want to be clear too. So there's some super safe Democratic seats, which allows the Republicans to pick up more. Uh, seats in some of those states. So it was a right. Faustian bargain that the Democrats uh, uh, did to maintain their seats as more safe. It was a very typical Democratic move. Uh, but anyone who's principled should have should not care about that at all. Uh, do we have a democracy or don't we? No matter who wins. So right. now, now let's go to uh, to campaign finance. So uh, there's a, a provision about uh, lobbyists in here too. You, we didn't talk much about that. Um, what is that provision, Professor Leslie? Well, so there's a whole title, Title Four, um, which is a whole bunch of transparency provisions. Which you know, I'm not against transparency. I just don't think transparency is going to buy us a responsive, non-corrupted government. What will buy us that is a system where members of Congress are not sucking up to a tiny number of people to raise the money they need to fund their campaigns. That's the only thing that gets us that. So yeah, there are lots of great transparency rules regulating lobbyists. There's a whole section for ethics reform, which will for the first time make the Supreme Court subject to ethics rules, adds a whole bunch of Trump inspired executive branch ethics rules, adds a bunch of restrictions on Congress. I didn't realize this, but members of the House are still allowed to sit on commercial boards. I mean, it's astonishing, but that would end that. Um, there's an election security provision, which is really important. It's got a great idea of hiring hackers to try to hack into elections and see if they can break in. And it's got a, law, a requirement that presidents release their tax returns, candidates release their tax returns. So all of that, I think, is icing. The most important part is the part you and I have been fighting about. That's campaign finance, that's title five, that's matching funds and a pilot program for vouchers. So let's get into that a little bit more. Um, so why, why is matching funds so great? Why are you so excited about it? Well, I mean, you know, if I, you know, because you've read the books, I, my first preference is vouchers. That's what I think is the big idea. Uh, and, you know, I think that this is taking a step towards that by having a pilot program for vouchers. But the reason I think vouchers are extraordinarily good and matching funds are really good is that both of those ways of raising money incentivize candidates to reach out to many, many people to fund their campaigns. Instead of relying on a handful of large contributions, where they learn how to suck up to the most powerful interests in America to raise the money they need to get to Congress, spending 30 to 70% of their time raising money. Instead of doing that, 
They have to turn to people, ordinary people, and raise money in small contributions. Now, um, you know, $100 is still a lot of money to most Americans, which is why I prefer vouchers uh, as a complement to um, to matching funds. But there's, you know, we did a we did a town hall with Bernie at the end of the campaign, where he came out strongly for vouchers, and he said, "Look, I'm for matching funds. That's great." But he gave the most compelling 10-minute account, better than anything I've ever seen, of why vouchers would radically improve the participation of ordinary people in politics. And that's the thing we need to be aiming for. We need to be aiming for a world where everybody has an incentive, a stake, and wants to participate in the funding and in the voting. And that's what these changes would enable. So the matching funds are very easy to understand. You know, as Professor Lessig was alluding to there, you give 100 bucks, all of a sudden it's 600 bucks. And it doesn't take away the Koch brothers money or the Mercer money or any other money, but but it at least allows people to get in the game. And as we've seen with just Democrats and other progressive wins, it turns out you could win with small dollar donations. And now this would supercharge that and it yes. would it would massively put us in the game. And by us, I don't mean progressives in this case, I just mean the American people. It will also, the Republicans get the same six to one. Matt Gates will get and Louis Gomer, they'll all get the same six to one. And and I know that there are some Democrats who don't like that as well. I don't want them getting empowered. Well, that's not how democracy works. Right. <laughs> we both get empowered or neither one of us does. So, but for vouchers, I think some folks might not know exactly how that works. So can you tell us how that one works? Yeah, so Seattle has demonstrated this now for two election cycles. It's basically the government gives everybody something like coupons, um, you know, vouchers that are worth a certain amount of money. Um, Bernie was supporting $50 vouchers. Um, uh, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand was supporting 200 for every federal election. So it's basically uh, money that's handed over for a single purpose. That's to help fund campaigns. So you can give it to your favorite candidate. If you don't give it to any candidate, it just reverts back to the government to be used for democracy improvement work. But you get to decide who the money goes to. So you know, you could say it's government money you're giving, but we need to embrace our inner Tea Party here. Whose money is the government's money? It's our money. We're getting our money back from the government. And we're giving this money to candidates so they get to fund their campaigns. So everybody will have that resource, not just the relatively rich, the tiny fraction, you know, a couple of percent who actually give $100 or more to, uh, to uh, congressional candidates. And that would be the game changer. But look, matching funds is the camel's nose under the tent. Once we start down this path and we have a clear vision with this pilot program, you know, we have more fights to have, but we will have fights on an easier and easier playing field because everybody will be bought into the idea that they're better off trying to raise money from tens of thousands of people rather than raising money from less than a thousand. Right. So uh, tell us about the pilot program. How, how would that work? Where are they going to try it? And, and, and if, how do we know if it's successful and then where would they take it after that? Well, I mean, the bill says there'll be a number of states. I think it's four that get to pick to participate in the voucher program. It's really underspecified exactly how it gets implemented. So I think there's a lot of work to make sure it's done well, done well in a scientific sense, done well in a sense that doesn't you know, convince Democrats this is bad for Democrats or Republicans that it's bad for Republicans. So it's a lot of work in the details about how this gets implemented. But um, but the ideal, let's try it, let's see what we can do with it, is extremely important. And um, I think we should be excited that it's part of this bill. 
Yeah, so now comes the part where I'm worried. Um, so uh, all, the Democrats must pass the voting rights provisions. They would be, it would be political suicide not to. And, and as frustrated as I get with the Democratic Party, even I don't think that they're that incompetent. Um, so they've got to do some sort of filibuster reform because it does not qualify for reconciliation. So they need 60 votes if they don't reform the filibuster. Now they're talking about a democracy exception to the filibuster. I'm conflicted on that because on the one hand, I want HR1 to pass, so I would love any exception to a filibuster. On the other hand, that's obviously done so they don't have to pass any other progressive economic legislation. So they can say, oh, well, God, there's nothing we can do about $15 minimum wage, but hey, this thing that helps us get elected. We just happen to pass that. Um, so I'm curious what your take on the so-called what democracy exception, which I think was invented yesterday, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, my view is um, I, I think the filibuster is ridiculous. You know, basically, people representing or senators representing 12% of the American people have the ability to block legislation. 12%, I mean, how is that a democracy? So I think the filibuster is ridiculous. Its history has been embarrassing. It's just something that should not be part of our system. So the long term is how do we get rid of the filibuster? How do we change the frickin' Senate? I mean, it's a ridiculous institution, okay. But the question is what do we do to save ourselves? from the demise that will happen if we don't pass something before 2022. So we're gonna pass something in the next four months. If it doesn't pass in the next four months, it doesn't matter in 2022. So I think whatever they can do to get an exception from the filibuster, the idea would be eliminating it, but you know, getting an exception would be fantastic. The real problem is like, what are they gonna compromise on? And here's where I think you and I share this anxiety. You know, The Democrats have learned how to raise money. They did a really great job raising money in 2020. Um, and there's a fear that a number of them are like, hey, wait a minute, we've perfected this machine. Why are you gonna break it just at the moment we've perfected it? Um, so there's this motive by a bunch of the kind of more conventional Democrats. And then there's this, I, I, I just think absurd argument being uh, propagated by people like Rick Hazen and Ned Foley, friends of mine, you know, law professors. But their argument is that, the only way to pass this bill is to strip it down to the core provisions, voting rights, maybe gerrymandering. That is a fundamental mistake. And I don't mean a moral mistake, I mean a political mistake. Because this bill attracts Democrats from across the spectrum. And there are people who care about every provision in this bill, but they don't all care about the same provisions. So, you know, if you're from a Democrat from Georgia, you care about voting rights because you've seen the games that can be played. But if you're a Democrat from Nebraska, what do you care about voting rights? Because they don't play that kind of game in Nebraska or gerrymandering Iowa. You don't care about gerrymandering Iowa. Well, they don't do gerrymandering because they have to have a nonpartisan commission forever. So the point is, we need a bill that can attract excitement from everybody. And the issue that excites everybody is the issue you've been talking about longer than I have. The issue that excites everybody is this is a corrupted government and we have to fix it. And the thing that fixes it is the campaign finance. It's a step in the direction of fixing it. If they cut that out, if they cut that out, that will be a fundamental compromise that we, um, you know, we should be furious about because it's not only not necessary, it actually makes the voting rights part more vulnerable. Joe Manchin is a supporter of public funding when he was governor 
of West Virginia, he pushed to publicly fund judicial elections. He's been an outspoken critic of the system where a tiny number of people fund congressional campaigns. So I don't think we should be, this is a classic thing Democrats do, negotiating against ourselves. Here we are negotiating against ourselves. We should be going in there saying every single jot and tittle of HR1 should be passed and fight like, can I say the word hell? I'm gonna say it anyway, yeah. fight like hell until we get it passed. And, and there should be no compromise at all until it's abs unless it's absolutely necessary and it's just not necessary now. Well, well, well Larry, we keep having debates, uh, these nonsensical debates with people inside the establishment because these are anti-corruption measures. Anti-corruption polls number one in the country out of all issues. Even healthcare in the middle of the pandemic, everyone hates corruption and Republican voters hate it the most. So. And here comes, you know, through the looking glass, uh, Jennifer Rubin in the Washington Post writing, well, you know, if we want to preserve the bill, we got to take out the anti-corruption parts. Now you're talking about law professors taking out the anti-corruption parts. It's it's absurd. And you're you're going to take out the most popular provisions that both parties' voters agreed to in order to pass it? No, it just, in a sense, Larry, doesn't it give away the game? That that reality is the. The corporate Republicans and Democrats don't think that it's an issue of popularity. They enjoy the corruption. That's what got them their position in the first place. If you won by having massive corporate money on your side, you don't really want the other guy being able to raise six to one or or to give money through a voucher program. And and if they do kill it, that's the real reason why they're going to kill it, isn't it? It is. You're right. And you know we should raise holy hell if they do, and we should talk about what the next steps are because the democratic process would have failed at that point. But until we're there, I think we just have to make people aware of how extraordinary this would be. You know, my brand is pessimism. I've been as dark <laughs> as you have been for as long as you've known me. But this is the closest we have been in two generations to fundamental reform here. And and you know, I know. That um, uh, you know that uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, the biggest fundraiser in the Democratic Party, desperately wants this to pass because she wants this to be her legacy. Like you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson passing civil rights and voting rights. She wants to be the um, number one fundraiser who changed the way the campaigns were funded. She wants this, and I think Chuck Schumer astonishingly also wants it. Um, and so the question is whether we can keep the pressure on. To make them do the right thing and to get it passed, because if they pass it, the president will sign it, and if he signs it, wow, the whole world will have changed. Yeah, and so everybody, make sure you're ready for this battle, because it is going to be a battle. Don't think just because there's no logical reason to oppose it that Washington <laughs> won't. They will, and normally I'm more optimistic than Larry, but in this case, I'm more pessimistic. I I I won't believe Pelosi and Schumer actually believe it until they pass it. So if you want this to be your legacy, there's a good way to prove it. Get yes. it passed. You guys yes. control the House, the Senate, and the White House. All right, Professor Larry Lessig from Harvard Law School. Uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Great to be here, Chuck.